Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I like my job, I like to work hard, I like to move my body, but there's a lot of people in there that are, I hate to say the word, guys, I hate to say the word. Say it, say it. <laughs> say, say it. Say people it. out there slaving right now, guys. Yes, it's 2022. How far have we come? This, this Last week, Amazon warehouse workers cast their ballots in two separate, closely watched union votes. One that you just heard was a repeat of a poll from last year in Bessemer, Alabama, that had been backed by an established national union. It's their second attempt. They got a do-over because of election interference last year. But even with results outstanding, it seems unlikely that unionizers will win. The other vote seemed even more quixotic, spurred by an upstart group, the Amazon Labor Union, in the New York City borough of Staten Island. Yeah, New York should be the best place to have a union for Amazon. This is a union town. One out of every five people here are involved in unions. It's not exaggerating to say it was a bit of a David versus Goliath situation, one that ended with a surprise. All right, I think we have the final number. 26.54 yes to 21.31 no. To the first union in American history. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Charlotte Howard, and in today's show, a tale of two union votes. We'll get the inside story of the upset in Staten Island. I think this is just proving that this isn't about $30 an hour. This isn't about anything like some traditional union campaign. This is, this is about workers coming together as a family. And a sense of why these votes are such a threat to Amazon. Amazon's business model depends on getting goods to customers quickly, and that process includes warehouses. And so that's why this focus on working conditions and the pace of work is so troubling for Amazon. Plus, we'll unpack, no pun intended, why it is that Amazon, like so many other companies, seems to be at the mercy of its workers. The pandemic has led, I think, to a genuine change on the part of companies about the importance of essentially treating their workers well, or at least better than they did. Is the union success in Staten Island a watershed moment for American labor and for Amazon? Or, as America's economy grapples with high inflation and global instability, does the union's victory mark the high point in workers' power? The vote to unionize Amazon warehouse workers in Staten Island was pretty remarkable. Even President Joe Biden's spokeswoman, Jen Psaki, weighed in. Well, the president was glad to see workers ensure their voices are heard uh, with respect to important workplace decisions. The Amazon workers in Staten Island made their choice to organize a grassroots union and bargain for better jobs and a better life. Now, the Staten Island vote is noteworthy both because of who was organizing the fight, which we'll get to in a minute, but also because of the company in question. Amazon is the second largest private employer in America behind Walmart, 
Though until last week, none of the company's workers were unionized, Amazon still paid higher than the minimum wage, $15 an hour since 2018, and more in expensive places like Staten Island. Amazon has also led, of course, to the stunning rise of e-commerce, with fulfillment of millions of orders, which depend in turn on highly efficient warehouses and very close monitoring of its staff, creating working conditions that some have found unbearable. Many organizing campaigns traditionally have focused on wages. At Amazon, the question really concerned the work itself. So last week in the middle of the voting period, I headed out to Staten Island to visit the Amazon warehouse that was deciding whether or not to form a union, JFK 8. Stevie Hertz is our U.S. audio correspondent. And the Amazon site in Staten Island is huge. It's several warehouses, far from anywhere, really. It's wedged between a freeway and a nature reserve. And I wanted to chat to some Amazon workers about what it's like inside, what their jobs are like. Amazon really tightly controls access to the warehouse itself. And to be honest, I wasn't expecting a lot of people to want to talk to me, to want to talk to the press. But it turns out that people had a lot to say. Tell me more about that. What were they saying? I spoke to workers at the end of their 10 and a half hour shift and I asked them how it had gone. How was today? Was it a good day at work? Yeah, never really a good day. We, we stand for 10 and a half hours a day. Okay, right then and there, that doesn't make for a good day, even if the day goes smoothly. One thing I learned about Amazon is that the pain doesn't go away. Like the, the pain in your feet, your ankles, your knees, your back, your neck, it never goes away. You just know how to tolerate it. So it is tough some days, uh, but it's also not for everyone. You will be physically and probably mentally drained by the end of the day. And uh, it's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Coming off shift now, you seem like you're in a pretty good mood. Yeah. uh, You know, I I like working out. So it's kind of like a full body workout, you know. So even before the pandemic, the average length of time that someone spent working as an Amazon hourly employee was about eight months. So even workers who say they enjoyed working at Amazon, and there were some who say they did, they were already looking for a way out. For me, if I find something else, I will leave Amazon immediately. I can't wait to get out of this place. (laughs) I cannot wait. But when I asked workers then, last Tuesday, how they felt about unionizing, they were mixed. Does it tell us that it's not always easy to vote a union out? Once it's in, if you are not satisfied uh, with it, it can be highly difficult to vote it out. I actually voted no. Every time I needed something from HR, I almost always got it, unless it was out of the way or, you know, too much for them to handle. Most times I've been able to get everything handled. They, they need a union. Like, the way they just throw people away, it's not cool. We need to get treated better, not like we're robots. So I hope it happens. I have a good feeling about it. I pray. <laughs> Stevie, it's so interesting to hear from those workers. Why do you think that they were mixed in their support? What do you think the countervailing pressures were? So there are lots of ways in that working at Amazon is actually a pretty good job. The minimum wage at the Amazon complex on Staten Island is $18.25, which is above the New York City minimum of $15. Amazon offers health care and tuition benefits for its full-time workers. Amazon also pushed very hard against unionization. They say that having a direct relationship with the company is the best for our employees. And they expressed that message in mandatory anti-union meetings and in leaflets that were papered across the warehouse. 
And nationally last year, they spent over $4 million on anti-union consultants to talk to their staff about unionization. In general, from the workers I spoke to who were more sceptical about unionization, there was just a sense that it might not change things and that they would just end up losing money from their paycheck. Clearly, though, the union organizers did something right, though. They were able to have this success despite all of the money that Amazon spent on consultants, despite those mandatory anti-union meetings. These are things that union organizers have complained about for a long time, not just in the context of Amazon, but more broadly. How did they overcome some of those factors. So the really interesting thing about this vote is that it wasn't organized by a big established union. The Amazon Labor Union, which ran it, was founded last year. They are small and they are independent. They describe themselves as worker-led. And you could really tell how this informed their campaigning tactics. After I visited the warehouse, I tagged along to what they call their headquarters, which is just really two of the organizers' front room. The toilet was broken, the, the Christmas tree was forgotten about in the corner. What's the deal? The economist comes and you clean up the table? <laughs> Being there was when I really realized the contrasts in this campaign. It was a bunch of volunteers with almost no budget. The treasurer told me that the entire campaign cost less than $120,000 going up against the second largest private employer in the United States. But they were pulling out all the stops in that last stage of the campaign. They were making videos, they were ordering Ubers to get individual workers to the polls. Many of them were phone banking. Hey, yeah, what's up? My name's Mitch. I'm with the Amazon Labor Union, and I'm a tier one worker at LDJ5. Um, I was just giving you a quick call because I wanted to make sure you had a chance to ask any questions before you go vote. Including Julian Mitchell Israel, who's an ALU organizer oh, and an yes. Amazon worker. Yes, girl. Okay. <laughs> Hell yeah, make sure all your friends go vote too. <laughs> Word, okay, I feel you, I feel you. Uh, okay, cool, good stuff. Well, yeah, thank you so much for your support. These guys were passionate and they were hopeful and they were idealistic, but JFK 8, which is the warehouse they were trying to unionize, is a huge warehouse, even by Amazon standards. 8,000 people were eligible to vote. I've been telling people right now, and it's, it's probably true, is that it's neck and neck, so like every vote counts. You yeah, one probably right true. Down, yes, you might, like, they might change the course of history. Shit. That's compelling. It's a compelling argument. And there was this really striking contrast to me between this very ordinary scene of a bunch of young people hanging out, arguing over where to order food, but then the terms that they used to describe their work. For people like Mitch, they thought of it as historic. It feels less like optimism and more like necessity. Um, I don't think that it, that our will to fight this is coming from some, like, naivete or, like, some sort of hopeful view of the future. I think a lot of the organizers here see see this as sort of just the last stand. And it's not about taking up arms for, for some grand ideological cause, but, like, just that we are faced with this behemoth of a corporation that represents sort of, like, I don't know, the, the way that the economy is moving. And I think like this is potentially like the last stand for a true working class movement in the US. While I was there, I also met Chris Smalls, who is the charismatic founder and president of the Amazon Labor Union. We're brainstorming right now. The vibe is good, momentum is good. He used to be an Amazon worker and was fired at the start of the pandemic for either leading a walkout or breaking quarantine rules, depending on who you ask. So he kind of became an organizer overnight. Vote yes. 
I asked him why he had chosen to do this the hard way, without the money and without the people that comes with big labor. Yeah, you know, uh, we felt that as Amazon workers, whether former or current, that we know the ins and outs of the company best uh, rather than the third-party established union that, you know, um, doesn't really have the influence that we have on our coworkers. And, um, you know, we, uh, we, don't, we know that Amazon uses a lot of propaganda against unions, uh, attacking their financial records, their history, um, the, the salaries of, you know, the presidents. Um, they wouldn't be able to do that with, you know, this type of campaign and um, the way we organize, the way we are pretty much, uh, I guess you could say, uh, strategically strategize against Amazon. They haven't been able to uh, slow it down. So what happened next? So the voting in the election ended at 1 a.m. on Thursday and votes started being counted later that day. The union had to get to 50% plus one vote with no minimum turnout. And I remember coming into work the next day and kind of seeing you and saying that this wasn't going to be an overwhelming result like it was in Bessemer last year, but it also wasn't clear which way it would go. Yeah, 45 minutes. Yeah. I mean, it's not... Later that day, I tried to go to a union viewing party to watch the votes being counted, but a lot of the union have full-time jobs at Amazon, so they weren't free in the middle of the day, and it was a very quiet party. As we speak, we're watching uh, the NLRB representatives count the ballots for our election, which just ended at JFK 8. And how do you think it's going? Oh, well, it's, it's a nail-biter. Um, we're, it's about 50-50 right now, it looks like, but it's, uh, the spirits are high. But there was this kind of dawning sense as more and more votes were being counted that they might actually win. I mean, it wouldn't be as exciting if we were just blowing them out of the water, I guess. And the real mood changed on Friday when outside the National Labor Relations Board, which were counting the votes, their office in Brooklyn, there was a huge press swarm and a real party atmosphere as the final votes were being counted. So it's just, it's, we won. It's, we won. We did it. We did it. Yeah. I ran into Mitch again, one of the ALU organizers who was phone banking earlier in the week. This time he was holding a bottle of champagne. I'm feeling phenomenal. I, I think uh, this is just proving that um, this isn't about $30 an hour. This isn't about anything like some traditional union campaign. This is, this is about workers coming together as a family. And, and I think everything just, everything played out exactly how it needed to for us to have just a phenomenal day today. I feel really proud of this team. It's the most amazing thing. Madeline Wesley Maddy is treasurer of the Amazon Labor Union, and she was also feeling the moment. We believed that Amazon is, um, you know, such a uh, such a different workplace. We had to be creative. So um, that's that's why we won, in my opinion, because it's a worker-led movement. So, what did union organizers take away from this vote? Like most of these guys had been working day and night, both for Amazon and for the Amazon Labor Union. Do you guys get to, like, sleep now? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Going right back to organizing. <laughs> yeah. They are trying to move their campaign forward, too. Another warehouse on Staten Island is voting on whether to form a union later this month. And they say that since then they've been contacted by workers at over 50 different warehouses across America about forming their own unions. Well, I think now we've broken the ice. We've done what people thought was impossible. 
and I expect Amazon unions will be popping up all over now. They attribute a lot of their success, and I think very effectively, to the fact that this was a worker-led campaign. This was a small group of people who had connections across the floor and who knew people and who knew the challenges of working at Amazon and could persuade them to vote for a union based on that. And we went for the top dog because we want every other industry, every other uh, business to know that uh, things have changed. We're going we gonna to unionize. We're not going to quit our jobs anymore. And, uh, you know, this is a prime example uh, of what, what the power that people have when they come together. What do we really want? A strong union. When do we want it? Now, now. Billionaires, they got to go. Billionaires, they got to go. Billionaires, they got to go. Amazon should know. This is our streets. This is our streets. Now, Stevie, this was just one of two union votes happening, and I want to bring in our Mountain West correspondent, Aaron Braun, who's been following the other vote in Bessemer, Alabama. Hi, Aaron. Hi, Charlotte. Thanks for having me on. You and I are going to speak about the particular dynamics of Amazon's business model that make unions like these seem particularly threatening in a second. But while I have both of you on the line, Aaron, I'm curious, what did you make of the Staten Island vote, given your reporting in Alabama? I think Stevie's point about it being a worker-led movement was really interesting. When I was in Alabama, I found it kind of striking that at a rally in support of the union, a lot of the speakers were actually from D.C. and Atlanta. And I wonder if that kind of outsider role played any type of role in the vote in Alabama. Yeah. And I think there's kind of a broader statewide context here, which is that New York is a highly unionized state, which organizers like Chris Smalls know well. um, Yeah, New York should be the best place to have a a union for Amazon. Um, This is a union town. Um, One out of every five people here are involved in unions. So many New Yorkers know someone who's in a union or is in a union themselves. And that's in contrast to Alabama, where you reported where 6% of workers are in a union. I think that's a fascinating point, Stevie. When I was in Buffalo earlier this year, I was talking to some Starbucks organizers, and they all had union members in their family, even though they were working in an industry that hadn't historically been unionized. They had parents or grandparents who worked in manufacturing or or bus drivers and were unionized in that way. And you do have this big geographic variation in both union rates and just political acceptance of unions as well as the regulations around the ease with which one can form a union, and it varies dramatically from state to state. So Alabama, of course, is a right-to-work state. Erin, how did that play out in the Bessemer vote? Yeah, I think that's a really important point, Charlotte. Bessemer and the Birmingham area more broadly also does have um, a long union history with all of the steelwork that happened around there. Um, But Alabama being a right-to-work state, which means that Even if a workplace is unionized, employees are not compelled to join that union. I think it takes some of the power away from organizers because workers don't necessarily have to join to get any of the benefits that the union might provide. Right. You heard some of the workers who Stevie interviewed talking about the cost-benefit analysis, basically, worrying about whether they would actually get the gains from unionization that would uh, make it worth it to have some costs, some dues going to the union itself. And so it sounds like the math just didn't add up in Alabama. Thank you, Stevie, for doing all that reporting from Staten Island and walking us through the union's tactics there. It's so fascinating. Hope you get some sleep. 
Yeah, thanks, Stevie. Really interesting to hear about New York. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Aaron, I'm glad I get the chance to talk to you to dive into this in depth because I think the dynamics of an Amazon warehouse in Alabama are pretty interesting. So there's always this tension, right, when you're talking about a union drive because there are some workers who are just grateful to have the job and they worry about being too antagonistic toward their employer. And that's particularly noteworthy, I think, with Amazon because there's so many different towns that have been really interested in bringing Amazon warehouses to them as an economic development play. So, of course, we all watched with interest as Amazon held this competition for its headquarters and there were cities tripping over themselves to to try to get those headquarters in in their area. But even with warehouses, there's always a big concerted effort to bring them and to bring the company employment. So what's the history of Amazon in Bessemer? I think that's a really good point to start on, actually. Um, so Birmingham, the Birmingham area actually put in a bid to get Amazon second headquarters. Um, and folks at Amazon have actually told me that they looked at that HQ2 competition and from all of the information that they got from it, they were able to figure out where they wanted to open new tech hubs or new warehouses. And for them, Bessemer, with it with its location near highways and its workforce and its close proximity to Birmingham, fit the bill that they wanted for where to build a new warehouse. And so Kenneth Gully, who's the mayor of Bessemer, viewed this warehouse as a way to bring jobs to the area and diversify the local economy. Right now, Amazon employs about 6,100 employees not only here in Bessemer, but in and around Jefferson, Shelby, Bibb County, Tuscaloosa County. So, you know, it has been a blessing not only to the city of Bessemer, but it's been a, a blessing to the region. It's, been a- it's so interesting to hear what he has to say, because I think there are many leaders of different cities or governors who talk about economic diversification, and yet they do remain beholden to these really big employers. So... Has Amazon had the result that the mayor intended? Is it playing out as he hoped? When I asked the mayor this question, he said that it was. He was really pleased with all of the other businesses that had come to town, not just since Amazon had come, but also before then. You know, I look at the fact, and I'm proud of the fact that, you know, that we're hardworking, you know, blue collar and so town, you know, building stuff on the steel industry. But that diversification that I was talking about is what we need. We never want to be in a situation again where one corporation closes and put us in a situation where, you know, our unemployment rate was what it was and so back there then. But if you look at the wages of Amazon warehouse workers compared to warehouse workers in counties without Amazon, an Amazon warehouse worker made about $41,000 a year in 2017, which is about 10% less than warehouse workers in counties without Amazon. And when Amazon instituted a $15 minimum wage in 2018, workers' fortunes definitely rose, but not faster than warehouse workers as a whole. And Amazon, it should be said, does not like this comparison. They argue that workers in traditional warehouses are paid more because they belong to unions already or they're certified to use heavy equipment like forklifts, whereas Amazon's workers do often come to the job after working in retail or fast food or even after being unemployed. 
Can you tell me, Aaron, what the union organizers were seeking from the company? Because the company would argue that they pay workers pretty well and they treat them pretty well. And historically, wages, of course, have been a huge reason why people might uh, unionize. They might seek to drive a better contract with management just to get higher pay. So is that the issue here? And if not, what is? Sure. I found this really interesting, actually, when I talked to a bunch of workers in Bessemer. Wages were brought up sparingly, actually, as a reason why the workers wanted to unionize in the first place. A lot of them told me that the reason why they came to work in Amazon to begin with is because the pay was good. So the union drive for them was more about working conditions and dignity than anything else. Basically, they don't want you to sign out. If you have to use the bathroom, they don't want you to be out of your station to use the bathroom for more than five minutes. Actually, three minutes. Mind you, it takes about five minutes to get to the bathroom for me. I'm 5'7 and some change, and I walk fast, and I'm lean. Okay, so, so yeah. Um, they felt like their bathroom breaks were too short because the warehouses are so big, and it takes so long to walk through, and that they kind of felt like cogs in a machine due to Amazon's performance tracking algorithms. That's so fascinating. I hear that again and again from different workers who I speak with, that it's really about conditions and it's about not feeling like you're being managed by an algorithm. So why is this such a problem for Amazon? Is it they're not worried about wages, but they are worried about something else? Why is this complaint in particular problematic for the company? I think this really gets to the heart of why Amazon fights so hard against union drives. The company might be able to afford shelling out for higher wages, but Amazon's business model depends on getting goods to customers quickly. And that process includes warehouses, but also delivery stations and sorting stations all before the box ends up at your doorstep. And so that's why this focus on working conditions and the pace of work is so troubling for Amazon. They're not ideologically opposed to raising wages, but they don't want to slow down the work that happens on the warehouse floor by allowing more breaks or tweaking these algorithms that measure efficiency. So, Ern, what do you think now that the Bessemer vote probably won't be sustained, but we do have this momentum coming out of Staten Island? Do you think that there's going to be any substantive change in how Amazon manages its staff? Some economic development folks that I talked to were convinced that Amazon's need for workers was so intense that even without unions, they would end up meeting workers in the middle because they need to keep them so badly. I am a little bit less convinced by this just because Amazon itself doesn't really mind churn. The, the rate of turnover at Amazon warehouses is very high, but I think that that might also contribute to the lack of unionization that we've seen in warehouses so far. You know, workers don't have time to build that camaraderie. And if that changes, then we might see more union drives in the future. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing how this plays out and I hope you continue to report on it for us. Thanks, Erin. Thanks, Charlotte. To read more of Stevie and Aaron's reporting from Staten Island in Alabama, in addition to all of our coverage on the war in Ukraine, you can subscribe to The Economist. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer. You'll find that link in the notes for this episode. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Let's examine that churn that Aaron mentioned earlier in a bit more depth. These union votes at Amazon warehouses are coming during a really notable economic shift. The labor market in America is extraordinarily tight. Data released by the Bureau of Labor Statistics last week showed the unemployment rate dipped to 3.6% in March. If you go back to April 2020, America's unemployment rate was nearly 15%. Had things recovered at the same pace after the global financial crisis, today's unemployment rate would be over 13%. But clearly that didn't happen. In a speech last month, Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, said that if anything, the labor market recovery had been too dramatic. By many measures, the labor market is extremely tight. There are far more job openings going unfilled today than before the pandemic. Indeed, there are a record 1.7 posted job openings for each person who is looking for work. Record numbers of people are quitting jobs each month, typically to take another job with higher pay. This situation is creating a whole host of challenges, not just for employers like Amazon, but also for policymakers who are trying to grapple with this question of how to contain inflation without depressing the job market. And it's changing the relationship between workers and employers in a variety of ways that go beyond just unionization. When COVID struck in the spring of 2020, people were really worried that the U.S. and other countries were going to have a period of very, very long and high unemployment. Callum Williams is a senior economics writer. And this really was born out of the experience of the aftermath of the financial crisis, where unemployment went up pretty high and then took a long, long time to come down. But it didn't really turn out that way at all. So you saw the Biden administration, you've seen the Biden administration greet these job reports as good news. Do you think that they're right to crow about this? How should the Biden administration Think about this phenomenon we're seeing now where the labor market is so tight that it's almost too tight. So I think most economists like the idea of tight labor markets. And basically, this is because they have enormously progressive impacts. You're talking about people who, in various aspects of their lives, will be struggling or disadvantaged. And it's those people who benefit from a, from a tight labor market. They are the people who can get jobs and earn money. So in that sense, it's right to crow about that when unemployment is as low as it is. On the other hand, you've got this uncomfortable trade-off, particularly for progressive-leaning economists and administrations, because it's quite hard to acknowledge a kind of economic reality, which is there is a point at which labour markets become basically too tight. And when that happens, you have labour shortages, but, but kind of more importantly, you have wage inflation, which can, in some instances, spiral out of control. What you have now in America is a situation where, yes, wages are increasing in cash terms very quickly, but prices are increasing even faster. So the kind of people that the Biden administration is supporting and saying it's helping so much are actually losing from the situation as it currently stands. Yeah, I've been struck by some of the data that comes out on a national scale, as well as the more anecdotal data that you see. So in your piece this week, there was a county in Nebraska where there was this Chipotle where they had wages for 15 an hour, which is twice the federal minimum. 
And local farmers were looking to Brazil and South Africa to try to find staff to populate their feedlots. So that's a pretty remarkable situation. And you see stories like that playing out across the country. If you're a worker, though, to your point, on the one hand, this seems like a good thing. On the other hand, you have this massive surge in prices that means that the any gains that you have from wages might be degraded and, and not be as valuable in terms of your own purchasing power. Do you think that we're going to see more unionization as a result of that or workers trying to cement their gains in any other way going forward? So I think you're definitely right to point to the idea, I think implicitly, that the benefits of a tight labour market don't just show up in wages. They show up in other ways. So for instance, the kind of really, really bad jobs that people were worried about in the early to mid 2010s are kind of to some extent going away. So a classic example of this being ride hailing, which really took off from about 2012, 2013 onwards. These were jobs which by many kind of objective standards are not, are not great. You have basically zero rights and so on. But people were so desperate for jobs that they would take them. Now, if you go to basically any city in the rich world and try to get a, a ride hail, it's actually pretty hard. People just don't really want to work for these companies to the same extent as they did before. Um, you're also seeing that there's a lot of investment, for example, in like improving the quality of HR because companies are much more concerned about hanging on staff. Unionization, I'm actually pretty skeptical about the idea that unionization in the US is going to take off, even if the labor market remains tight. And why is that? Why are you skeptical? Basically, because my view is that unionization is not really a cyclical question. It's much more of a structural question. And in particular, it's just very difficult, I think, to have high levels of unionization in a non-industrial economy. If you look at the economic history of pretty much every rich country, you see a large growth in unionization during the Industrial Revolution as the amount of kind of fixed capital factories and that kind of thing goes up. And then as you enter the 70s and 80s and you have deindustrialization, the economy just changes in very fundamental ways, which means that the role that unions can play is, is, is just much lower. So I'm not one of those people who thinks there's going to be this resurgence in unionization, notwithstanding the vote a few days ago. But I think there'll be other ways in which workers can assert their power. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you on that. I think that you see companies offering all kinds of things, including, you know, sign-on bonuses, of course, but also just little things like improving the quality of lunch that they're offering staff. And it's amazing how much people care about that kind of stuff. So you see big changes and little changes on the wage front. In terms of unionization, I definitely agree with you broadly that I don't think we're going to see a turning point now. But I think that in some sectors, in particular healthcare, that you're seeing a real crunch where the need for healthcare workers is just so uh, exaggerated, both because of the aging population and coming out of the pandemic. It's just a healthcare workforce that's really exhausted. And so I think the unions might have more success in continuing to unionize nurses, which of course, not a, not a factory job, um, but a service job and where you have seen some of these unions have success. Right, absolutely. But of course, the other thing is that there are ways in which workers can come together and act as if they are in a union without being part of a formal union mechanism. So, you know, the classic example being the various teachers' strikes that took place shortly before the pandemic. The role of formal unions in that was actually kind of minimal. It was all done on like Facebook and WhatsApp and that kind of thing. And then if you look at, you know, the way in which, to go back to ride hailing, the way that drivers for those companies are unionizing, often it's a kind of informal thing where like everyone coordinates again on like WhatsApp or whatever. So there's definitely 
a movement towards workers kind of clubbing together and, and asserting themselves, it just might not show up in the kind of official unionization statistics. So Callum, I think if you and I both agree that the unionization vote in Staten Island doesn't mean that all of a sudden we're going to see a mass effort across Amazon's warehouses or indeed across many warehouses uh, in America, what do we make of it? Well, I don't personally think we should read into it too much. I mean, a classic example people will will use when talking about this is the point to this Gallup poll, which says that Americans are more favorable to unionization than ever before or since the 60s or whatever. And, you know, part of the reason for that is because there are no unions anymore. So people have a much more romanticized view of them than they used to in the 1970s when, you know, things were not going very well. So I do worry there's a there's a tendency to kind of overinterpret these these quite local things. But, you know, who knows? I could be wrong. It's funny that you say that because I was about to fulfill your caricature of a commentator by hearkening back to that Gallup poll. But I generally agree with you. I think there are a few things going on. One is the support for unionization. And that may be a bit of a, a, a romantic version of what unions can achieve. It may also be because some of these younger workers are part of union families. And then, of course, you have the tight labor market. And then third, you have the ease with which you can organize or or at least the facilitation of, of organizing through social media. And so all those things help to push this movement along. But there's a di- big difference between this happening in a few places and this happening on a much more broad scale. And I take the view that there's just no evidence yet that this will happen on a really broad scale and that the balloon may deflate before it's able to soar. Right. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of good evidence that in the past that unions did a lot of good, particularly for certain groups. And, you know, definitely in the in the, in the 2010s, it was clear that like workers had too little bargaining power. So there is, I think, a very good argument for unions. But I think as a result of that, people are keen, perhaps too keen to pick up on trends which they think are moving in the right direction. I fear that the people's desire for, it's a very good desire, their motivations are very good to look for ways in which workers can can have a better condition, I think leads them sometimes to overinterpret current events. Yeah, I think that's right. Anytime you're trying to have a movement take off, you want to build enthusiasm, right? And so one way to build enthusiasm is to tell your would-be supporters that they can be part of a historic movement. If it's not really a historic movement and more a historic half-step forward, it's less exciting. Callum, thanks so much for your time. It was great talking this out with you. Thanks, Charlotte. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. If you love the show, please give us a rating and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Or write to us at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Sam Westron. Our sound engineer is Saul Rivers, and the editor is Kim Gittleson. I'm Charlotte Howard in New York, and this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.